And the title of the sermon this morning is The Three Wise Men. The Three Wise Men. I hope uh, everybody's caught up with your Christmas shopping. I hope, uh, no, I'm just kidding. That is actually the, the title. Um, and it's strange to think, it was strange for me to think about The Three Wise Men as, as it was like 90, 98 degrees yesterday, nowhere near Christmas. But I think our text is, is going to show us or draw our attention indeed to three wise men who, who have nothing to do with following stars to stables and whatnot. Let's look at verses 12 to 18 in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. It says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let's pray one more time. Lord, I, I ask that you would help us now as we turn to your word in this, this text that is ancient and yet filled with wisdom and perspective for our lives and for those around us. So Lord, I, I pray that you would teach us according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So of the three wise men, the first one for sure is Solomon. And we're really going to spend most of our time this morning on him because the, the text, as you can see, makes a direct turn towards Solomon himself. Now remember when it says, I the preacher, that word Koheleth, the preacher, we've already said, or we believe that this is, is either Solomon himself writing this, uh, but even if it's not, even if it's somebody who's writing and, and putting uh, himself in Solomon's skin, that matters less than the fact that we are clearly meant to hear these words from the life and the experience of Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, save Jesus. And if you don't get that from the introduction to this book, this first line in our text in, in verse 12, it says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. This is now obviously biographical, right? He's going he's gonna to talk about himself. And it is about Solomon, who, like his dad, King David, were the only two that reigned over Israel in Jerusalem. Because if, if you know or remember, Solomon's son would divide the kingdom and Israel would be in the north and Judah would be in the south and Jerusalem would become the capital of Judah. So he says, I have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Uh, so this is, is clearly Solomon. And that's why I'm just going to call him Solomon throughout our, our study of Ecclesiastes. But before we take a look at his quest that he lays out for us in these verses, and that will fill the pages to come, I do want to reacquaint ourselves with Solomon a little bit, because he is certainly one of the more striking and well-known characters of 
the Old Testament, and we haven't done this yet, so let's, let's remember some things about Solomon. You, you may or may not know that, that Solomon's father was King David, the great King David, and his mother was Bathsheba. After David and Bathsheba's scandal, the baby that, that they had produced in that scandal, during that scandal, produced in sin, that baby had died. But God forgave David and Bathsheba, and he gave them a son, a son that it says that God loved, and they named this son Solomon. And then after a few twists and turns, when Solomon became king after David, uh, God gave Solomon this deal. He said, ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And you remember what he asked for, right? What did he ask for? He asked for wisdom, right? So this is what it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 1. God answered Solomon, because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself, so that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor such as none of the kings who had come before you, and none after you shall have the like. So Solomon came from the high place at Gibeon, from before the tent of meeting to Jerusalem, and he reigned over Israel. And then this example is given in 2 Chronicles 9. It says, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from Solomon that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, and their clothing, his cupbearers, and their clothing, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, it took her breath away. There was no more breath in her. And then 1 Kings 10 reports, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. It's amazing. Solomon is an amazing figure from the Old Testament. And, and I'd encourage you to go back into some of those pages and, and read about the wealth Gold as plentiful as, as, as bronze, silver. They didn't even care about silver. The, the, the temple that was so glorious and the palace they made. It's an amazing story. So this is, this is our, our guy. This is our man. But look at his quest. This is his quest in, in verses 12 to 13. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So this is shaping up to, to look pretty good, right? We now have the wisest man ever who's going to apply his heart 
and the wisdom that's been given to him by God to seek out some of the deepest questions in life that we all wrestle with. And you remember this phrase, under the sun or under heaven. It it alerts us, though, to the perspective of life removed from God. The wisdom that Solomon is going to use in this quest, and it's important for us to to realize this, the wisdom that Solomon's going to use is human wisdom. It's not divine wisdom. He's going to explore the meaning of life under the sun apart from divine wisdom. And it's, it's, it's true because of the amount of times that he uses the word I or my in this section. We don't see God and we don't see his word consulted here. He said, I applied my heart. I said in my heart, I perceived. As a matter of fact, 10 times we see I or my in this short paragraph. So Solomon is going to use earthly wisdom. Not divine wisdom. Now, God gave Solomon wisdom, and wisdom is always a good thing. And, and wisdom in the Bible at different times includes both human and divine wisdom. But he's going to apply wisdom that exists under the sun to try to figure out the meaning of life under the sun. But don't miss how sincere this quest is. Right? He says, I, I applied my heart. Meaning this isn't a, a passing thing for him. He is sincere. He is all in with regard to this project that he is going to set about. It is a good thing to think and to care and to consider the meaning of life, to apply yourself to these questions. Maybe you're in that spot. Maybe you have done deep dives in your life trying to answer life's biggest questions. Just so you know, Solomon did too. If you are contemplative, if you are a deep thinker, and maybe you wish you weren't, because it can, it can get dark down there the deeper you go, right? But it's, it's not a bad thing. Solomon applied his heart to try to figure out what's the point. And then look how comprehensive his quest is. He says that he explored all that is done under heaven. He says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And we believe him, don't we? Just a a cursory look at his life and the things that he knew and the experiences that he had. Just those few verses that we read about his wisdom and the things that he thought through and what we know of his life. We believe him when he says, I have searched everything. He had seen it all. He had done it all. This is a comprehensive quest. So Solomon is going to apply his heart and activate his wisdom to try to answer what is the point of life. This is his quest. And if last week, if you remember, was a bleak rundown of all the things that are true about life as we know them on the outside, the things that we can observe about life, how it's fleeting and temporary and uncontrollably random and, and unexplainable at times. There's nothing new under the sun. That was a trudge last week, wasn't it? Like seven things, thing after thing after thing after thing. It was just like, Wow. But if we can observe those things from the outside, it's as if Solomon now goes inside. He's going to take it inside, into his head, to search out 
wisdom to figure out the point of life. And what does he find? Well, it's not good news, right? It's just not good news. Look again at verse 13. This is what he found. He says, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So let's walk through this finding. He says it is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. And you think, well, what is the unhappy business? Well, I think, I think in general, the finding is that life itself under the sun is an unhappy business. We certainly saw that and felt that last week because of that list. But here again, he says in verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and it is all vanity. It is all everything, a chasing after the wind. This is his conclusion. Everything under heaven is comprehensively no exceptions. It is all vanity. All of life, everything that we go after, Havel, remember this word, Havel? It's used like 38 times in this book. It's, it's defined as a vapor or a mist. And you know what vapor is like. Of course, there's this fleeting, non-enduring, nothing-last temporariness that then disappears into obscurity. That's what a, a vapor is or what, what smoke is. But what's so frustrating and why it's not translated vapor here is because vapor or smoke starts off as a substance, doesn't it? I mean, if you think about it, we know that it goes away. That's, that's kind of the, the main point. But at first, it does take a physical shape. And it looks like you can grab a hold of it. It looks, if you don't know, it looks solid. And you try to grab a hold of it, but it disappears in your grasp. What seems solid isn't. And then it disappears into obscurity. This is what all of life is, he says. It's all meaningless. And then he adds this phrase, it's a chasing after the wind, which, I mean, just picture it. How concerned would the people who love you the most be if you left the, the lobby today and just started running around with your arms wide open? You're like, what are you doing? I'm chasing wind. I'm chasing it. I'm chasing the wind. I think I'm going to catch it this time. I mean, we'd take you immediately to Virginia Beach Psych probably, right? I mean, something broke. You can't catch the wind. You can't shepherd the wind. You can't tell it where to go. Or think of it this way. How crazy 
would it be if someone said, hey, we're going to lunch, come and, and join us after church. And you said, well, where are we going? And they said, we're going to just go outside. And you're like, all right, I mean, it's going to be hot, but I've eaten outside before. And you say, well, what are, what are we going to eat? If that person said, we're going to eat the wind. Like, how futile, how pointless, how unsatisfying, how crazy. Chasing after the wind. This is the result of his quest. The wisest man on earth activated all of the wisdom given to him, and he says, it's all meaningless. Everything that we go after in life is like chasing the wind. And then he adds this proverb in verse 15. Do you see it? It, it kind of, if, it's, if you look in your Bible, it's kind of separated out because this is a spot in Ecclesiastes where of the many proverbs that Solomon wrote, this is one of them. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. And who can count what isn't there in the first place? Have you ever felt this frustration? You try with every mechanism that is available to you. Everything in your earthly power, every technique that you can think of to get something to change, either in you or in others, and it just doesn't and it won't. Have you ever felt that frustration? It's not just me, is it? What is crooked cannot be made straight. I think this often appears in our lives through our expectations, doesn't it? We, I think we all create expectations in our mind about what is supposed to be, whether that's an expectation about our lives or particularly expectations about our relationships. We just do this. As husbands and wives, we create expectations in our minds for each other. We create expectations for our children. We create expectations for our friends and how they're supposed to be toward us. But have you ever considered that no one can make straight what God has made crooked? You can spend your whole life raging against this proverb. With your probably right and reasonable expectations of others. You can spend day after day after day after year and year after year after year trying to get that thing to change only to grow frustrated and then anger, angry and then potentially bitter toward that person? But what if what you see is crooked and will never be made straight? What if you're raging against something that'll never change? Look, it's an unhappy business. To have the knowledge of good and evil, to know what straight is, and to want straight. It's an unhappy business to want straight, but to live in a world that is twisted crooked, isn't it? And it's also an unhappy business to have the capacity to want, but to live in a world where you can't always have. Trying to make straight what is crooked, and then trying to count what isn't there in the first place? You can't count what isn't there. You know, the things that we won't aren't often or always there. 
So then in this kind of mental state, this is the spot that we find Solomon. I think it's kind of like we all tend to do. He, he starts to talk to himself. Right? Have you ever talked to yourself? I find I'm doing that all the time now. <laughs> and Marie catches me. She's just like, honey, who are you talking to? Well, look in verse 16. We'll read it again. He says, I said in my heart, right? Talking to myself. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So this is what he chases down. I, I applied my heart. He went down the route of wisdom and madness and folly, trying to piece life together in his brain, trying to, to come up with a comprehensive explanation for the life that we live. And he said, this is also a striving after the wind. Because, in paraphrase, the, the more you try, the worse it gets. I wonder if you hear in his language of, of wisdom and, and knowledge, madness and folly, I wonder if you hear the echoes of Paradise Lost. Once again, the minor notes that started in the garden when Adam and Eve were kicked out, having got what they wanted, the knowledge of good and evil. Be careful what you ask for. Not only was this disobedience and thrust the entire creation into death and decay as a result. But they got it, the knowledge of good and evil. We know that to be made in the image of God is to be created with the capacity to know wisdom and madness and folly. And yet to try to put all those together into a comprehensive worldview is a striving after the wind. Because there is no human philosophy that makes ultimate sense of life. There isn't one. And the proliferation of philosophical positions over the centuries is nothing more than a chasing after that which can't be grasped, a chasing after the wind. So what an unhappy business it is to know that there is meaning in life, but to not be able to find it. What a cruel trick it seems to have sophisticated minds that can reason and explore the meaning of the universe, but for that meaning to be hidden from human wisdom. Do you get it? This is probably why dogs are always happy, right? I'm just convinced this is why dogs are always happy. They just don't have this problem that we have. We have two Carly and Kira, there are two. I, I, every day I come in and I say, hey, dummies. That's like what I call them. And it's probably kind of deep down connected to this. We put them in their kennels and when we go out and their kennels face each other. And they, they lay down in there. And we never know what goes on in there because we're not there. But I know what doesn't go on between them when we leave the house. Carly never says to Kira, hey, Kira, do you think that there is reality outside of our minds? And if there is, can we know it? And Kira doesn't say, not that again. <laughs> of course, all of our known reality only comes through our sensory organs that are computed in the physical and chemical makeup of our brains. But who would make up this reality? I don't know that I would put you in my reality, not to mention ticks and mosquitoes. 
And Kira never says, but what I want to know is, do words actually mean anything? Maybe she got wind of Wittgenstein's language games, where you find that words don't actually mean anything. Blue isn't a thing. It's only after hundreds of people, when you're a child, point to a blue thing and call it blue, that blue becomes the label for all things that we call blue. Life is action and deeds, and words only contribute to that, but don't have fundamental concrete meaning. To which Carly says, dang, I thought words meant something. <laughs> Look, they, they never argue Occam's razor or Zeno's paradox or Pascal's wagers. Dogs are happy. They're happy because they can't explore wisdom and folly and the madness that comes. Dogs never commit suicide. Philosophers do, either professional or amateur. Why? Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. It's true, isn't it? How many times I've, I've sat with young people and there's this, there's this duality because there's this wonderful gift of deep thinking and contemplation and, and following the line of reasoning, which is like the fireworks at the Jubilee the other night, you follow that streak for a really long time only to find that it explodes in a thousand different directions once you get up there. And you don't know which one to chase and which one to follow. It's a tremendous gift of thinking deeply about things. But the duality is that simultaneously I'm, I'm staring at a tortured soul Someone who's, who's deeply troubled. And sometimes to, to the point of, of panic, of depression. Not just, not just run-of-the-mill doubts that, that we all wrestle with when we think deeply about things. Look, this is an unhappy business. To have the ability to reason this way, so, to think so deeply, created in the image of God, and yet living our lives under the sun, under a curse. Where, where the general revelation of God only goes so far. Like chasing after the wind. It made me think this week about how this is like, like bubbles. I don't know if you've gotten the little can and the stick and blown bubbles recently, but I'm sure you can picture it. And you can picture the, the child or the children that sees them floating and shimmering, an actual shape that's mesmerizing, like a philosophy that has taken shape. But if you actually touch it, it disappears. And it will evaporate into incongruence somewhere. Every philosophy does. And yet, the universe is constantly blowing bubbles. For us, the children, to chase and to try to grasp and keep. But the moment we 
get close, they pop and disappear. And in this scenario, I think you can maybe picture three kinds of children. The first child is, is that anger, rage, tantrum child. Have you ever seen this? He's the kid that chases the bubbles, but they pop. And what does he do? He gets ticked. Right? Have you ever seen this kid? The bubble pops and he flops on the ground screaming and crying in an angry rage that these bubbles are popping. He's constantly angry at the unhappy business that is the ununderstandability and futility of chasing bubbles. And maybe you're that kid. Maybe you're always angry at life and its mysteries. Just a low-grade boil. Maybe that's you, but then maybe there could be a kind of stoic kid. And this is the kid that isn't going to play at all. She just sits in the grass. She's jaded and skeptical because she knows there's no point to chasing bubbles. They always pop, so I'm not even going to try anymore. Disillusioned already by the bubble game, she sits and doesn't care. Emotionally detached, no highs or lows, never truly happy or thrilled, never truly sad or disappointed, and maybe intellectually smug toward the kids who still play with bubbles and think that there's a point to it all. Maybe you're that kid. Maybe you've just grown cold and detached. Your conclusion to, to what's the point is to just quit. Or maybe you're the well-balanced kid. Maybe we could call this the wise kid. Who knows that the bubbles pop? But he finds the little bits of joy in the chase. Maybe the meaning is in the moment. He doesn't pin all of his hopes on capturing bubbles. He's okay with mystery, and he knows that there's a duality to it all. Bubbles are kind of fleeting, but they're also kind of fun, too. This kid is engaged, but with realistic expectations of life. You take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have the facts of life. For everyone over 45, you're welcome. Right? This, this kid is happy. These are pretty sophisticated kids, aren't they? <laughs> if you think about it. I think this third kind of, of kid, this, this wise kid, is going to be a landing place that Solomon will commend in Ecclesiastes. He's, just, he's going to say, eat, drink, and be merry. That's going to become his counsel for all who refuse to find meaning in life in divine wisdom. But I want to close with a look at the other two wise men that I promised. Solomon, for sure, is the first. Jesus is the second. And then maybe the third will be you today. It's so interesting to experience. I've never preached through Ecclesiastes before. I've certainly read it a number of times. But it's an interesting experience to, to feel the heaviness of it already. Ecclesiastes so far, it seems so depressing. It doesn't end. I mean, last week, everything in life, he says, is meaningless. It's, it's fleeting, as we, as we saw this endless repetition, nothing new under the sun, and then we disappear into forgotten obscurity. 
And then wisdom today and knowledge aren't any help either. All the wisdom of the world to try to define meaning in life under the sun has all been a waste of time, except for the intellectual stimulation that it provided for the, those who thought them up or their students. It seems depressing, but at the same time, it actually seems so honest. It seems hopeless, but the notes of hopelessness resonate with so many people. Who doesn't often wonder what's the point when life is the way that it is and the world is the way that it is? And I wonder if from this vantage point, from the hopelessness that life seems to be, from the depression and anger and futility that lives in the daily experience of hundreds of millions of people, I wonder if from the vantage point of Ecclesiastes, you and I can look at this verse that we know well. That says, for God so loved the world. This heaviness breaks his heart. There are billions of people on our planet who have no hope to accurately define what they're doing. And instead, hopefully won't think about the utter repetition and futility of day after day after day of doing the same things only to be disappointed and never satisfied and then to die. Without hope and without God in this world. Isn't that the end of Jonah? Isn't it okay for me to care about these hundreds of thousands of people who don't know their, their right hand from their left? From the, the experience, the human experience of the curse and the fall. Look from Ecclesiastes to John 3.16. For God so loves the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish but should have life. Life. Eternal life. This is the quest. This is what's deep down in every human being's heart. The longing for life, for true life, for eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, I, I know that we so often connect our salvation to our sin. And it's right. Jesus did come to die for our sin. This is the good news of the gospel. We sang the verses of it is well with my soul and tears come to my eyes every time that my sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. And guys, I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Yeah. This is true. Jesus died for our sin. But Ecclesiastes shows us that our God is a God who saves from the madness and hopelessness of life. God knew that the fall would thrust us into hopelessness and futility in life under the sun. And so he promised a savior. 
Someone who offers us life and meaning and purpose. Ecclesiastes cries out for a Savior who gives hope to the hopeless and life to the walking dead by opening our eyes to see our need for God to the one who created us to whom Jesus made a way for us to return to him because he died for us on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God and to introduce us to life. The one above the sun, the Savior that Ecclesiastes cries for, came from above the sun into life under the sun to destroy and defeat the stench of death that already smells out of this book. To destroy sin and death. And to see the hopelessness and the misery of humans that are living all around the world today who have no hope, no chance for it. We believers experience some of, the, some of that drifts into our own lives and our own heart because, because there's a, a flesh and a spirit and, and the, the spirit is willing and wants to believe, but the flesh is weak. And so we struggle with, with depressions and hopelessness and, and struggling with the same questions. It seeps into our own experience. What's the point of my life? And yet I know Christ. This is a thing, Right? We have the hope of returning to ground zero, returning to where we find hope, having a friend read us a scripture or having a song speak to us again or coming to church to remind us again and again, brothers and sisters, we are awaiting our blessed hope who will one day return and take us to perfection again, paradise found again, right? We have this hope. There are billions who don't. They don't have a friend who's pointing them back in the right direction. They don't have a a K-Love turned on to their radio station ever. They increasingly have never been to a church. Look, the heart of God breaks for the world, for people who don't know him. This is why he sent his son, to give hope to the hopeless, to give life to to the dead. Look, Jesus is the true wisdom of God, one greater than Solomon has come. Wise man, Jesus is the wisdom of God, who in God's wisdom crushed his son for the forgiveness of our sin to remove the sin and death that kept us from God, in whom we find life and hope. If you are are not a Christian. Jesus is the wise man savior who says, look, you're a thinking person. I know, about, I know about the mind. I know about reason. I created it. I gave that to you. You're a thinking person. You've, and, and you've seen enough of life to decide. If there are no real or final answers in your worldview to the meaning of life, then why not believe mine? Because I have one, Jesus would say. No one else has one. You spend your life. But I'm just going to tell you right now, it's a bad business. It's an unhappy business. Because the more you increase in wisdom and knowledge, the worse it's going to get. Look, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to find life, come to Jesus. And if you have come to Jesus, you say, well, how do we apply this? 
why don't we just go from this place and see the world through different eyes after today? And feel with a different heart, the heart of God, for the, for the, the thousands of people that we interact with every day. And I'm not encouraging anything other than to what the Lord may do in your own heart and what doors he may open up. Because in us dwells the one who is the hope of the world. He has saved us. It means he can save anyone, right? And if that's true, then brothers and sisters, let's, let's feel with compassion the hopelessness of people around us and see if the Lord might open up ways for us to speak into that. Amen? Lord, we thank you that the meaning of life is found in you. Lord, we thank you that, that, that we know the end of this story already. We know that this is the, the ultimate conclusion that we're going to find in this book, to fear you, to obey your commandments, to life only has meaning with you, and we know that and have found that to be true. Jesus, we thank you that we're found in you. You have become for us wisdom and righteousness. Lord, I just pray that that you would protect us from the hopelessness that does creep into our own hearts because of the realities of a fallen world or the the ways that we're not satisfied, the, the crooked things in our lives that we've tried to straighten out but just don't. Lord, and the angst and sin that that's caused in us and our experience. Lord, the times when we are, find ourselves in dark places, whether the combination of our, our hearts or the brokenness of our, our bodies and, and our minds. Lord, we thank you that, that we have hope in you. And I pray for anyone here who is struggling that you would direct their eyes to you. You're, you're, Jesus, you, in you is all the hope that we've found and that we need. And Lord, I just pray that you would, that you would help us to see those around us. Not for the things that, that irritate us or the ways of life that we have found to to know are wrong and destructive. Not to see people around us with purely human eyes that are tainted by the fall. Give us your eyes and your hearts. You're the one who loves the world and desire that none should perish, but should find life in you. Do a work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name.